welcome to another edition of Mr. Nice Guy. I'm Ben Slowey, and I am joined today by a community organizer and educator. Has worked with uh, the leader as a leadership coordinator uh, for Southside Organizing Center. Um, she also is the owner and founder of uh, Thrive Service Learning, MKE. And uh, they have an exciting uh, marijuana education series coming up. And uh, I'm excited to talk to her about her passions, activism, and why she does what she does. So thank you very much, uh, Drea Rodriguez, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, likewise. Uh, how are you? How's your day going? You know, it's been an interesting day. This is our first day doing hybrid learning with our school, going back to school now. So it's been interesting, but you know what? I'm very grateful to be here and yeah, I just kind of keep on trucking right now. I think it's the mood of everybody I know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it got a little chilly this week. Um, I went to go get some groceries earlier and I had to put on my old pea coat again. <laughs> you know, I was kind of enjoying the sun the last couple of weeks, but you know, it's, it takes us a couple tries to get out of, uh, fully get out of winter before we actually do, you know? Exactly. I'm, I'm grateful there's no snow. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, yeah. Um, are you uh, vaccinated yet? I am actually going to get my second one next week. So excited for that one. Um, but yeah, it, it looks like we're getting, I think I read recently that half the country is now vaccinated with the first shot. Yeah. So that's something major to celebrate. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I think I read today, actually, that I'm pretty sure all adults are eligible in all 50 states now. Um, so that is also a very exciting uh, development. So, yeah, I got the second shot on Thursday. Um, kind of hit me pretty hard. So I'd recommend not having too much to do for the rest of the day when, when you get it. Um, but I'm glad it's over with. That's what I'm hearing from everyone. That second one is is really the one that really knocks you down a little bit. But yeah, whatever we need to do to get there, I'm happy to do it. Yeah, same here, for sure. So, uh, Drea, well, we talked about a Mr. Nice Guy. We talked love and fear, passion and creativity. And so um, I've definitely, um, we've definitely been to some of the same actions before. Um, I organized with the Party for Socialism and Liberation and Never Again Action. And um yeah, I uh, took an interest in your work and uh, am excited to really actually sit down and get to know all the things that you've, you have going on uh, today. But before we do that, uh, typically where we start is, uh, so are you originally from Milwaukee? I am born and raised first generation American and a lot of the work I do today has definitely been informed for the way my parents raised me. Um, as a younger person, I grew up in a mainly black neighborhood, 23rd and Philippe area, went to a very small school, Urban Day, very much parent run. So, you know, in this school, my parents were often there, we were doing fundraising, you know, there was pizzas, oranges, whatever it is, it was even weaved in our academic work, we did it so much. Um, and really just pretty much prepared me that, you know, whatever we do in life, we have to contribute yeah. as a community. And, you know, we often talk about the rights of Americans, but we don't often balance it out with the responsibilities. And I really think our country is in a huge debate about where that line is. Um, but it's something that my parents, it was very important that, 
you know, we understood what we had to contribute. And, you know, they always took me to rallies. Mm -hmm. You know, we always were helping out in the community. We were always helping with safety or Black Watch or whatever it might be. And that's something, you know, as a, a parent now, you know, my kids come with me as often as possible when it's safe. And I really do feel like teaching that next generation is a huge part of keeping this going and keeping our city strong. So, yeah. Absolutely. That's great. And that's such a like um, valuable virtue to have to kind of escape the hyper individualism uh, of American life. Um, something that I definitely didn't grow conscious of until I was basically in college, really, because I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. And I definitely grew with grew up with uh, a lot of privilege. Like I grew up in a diverse area, but but not in terms of class. And uh, that m moving to Milwaukee for school really uh, instilled that in me too. And yeah, like we do have obligation to take care of one another, um, to, to organize together. And, yeah. and if I could add too, I mean, I really think that that mentality is something that is almost rooted out of you know, the boomer generation and almost like a, a European centric mentality because cultural responsive speaking, especially Latinx or black people, there's a huge push for just community, family, taking care of each other. And it's really the American dichotomy that is, you know, kind of that survival of the fittest, you know, let's compare to the Joneses kind of feeling. And really this is us getting back to those values of, you know, each one teach one and let's let's empower each other. So right. I'm really hoping that we return to that because that's very much rooted in the culture that I was raised in. And I really do see a lot of our younger generation of activists really embracing that. And it makes me so happy and so proud. Oh, same here. Uh, it's it's so precious to see. And um, I've really, really appreciated um, all of the work, uh, the, our wonderful organizers um, and protesters specifically the people's revolution uh, have have done in the last year um it's and uh, we're seeing it more and more and we're definitely we're, we're gonna get there we're gonna get to the present day but we got to start from the beginning so to so drea that being said so you mentioned so you you grew up here and uh yeah uh, i'd love to hear more about uh, more about your upbringing sure you know and you know as a typical first generation american you know often as a young child, I was put in situations where, you know, I had to translate things for my Spanish-speaking father, or I had to explain certain things because there was a cultural difference. So often I was put in situations where, you know, I was a spokesperson and I was also a kid trying to figure things out, you know, whether it was medical issues or issues with the police or whatever. Um, so it became very natural for me to help others and to connect and to explain. Um, so, you know, throughout my education, I had a, a variety of experiences when I was um, a sophomore in high school, I went to a very prestigious boarding school in Beaver Dam that really did make me understand, you know, how singled out I would be because I was a brown woman um, and dealing with a lot of rich individuals that, you know, the only brown people they ever saw were, you know, people that actually worked in their homes and cleaned their toilets. So to have that as a 15 year old, um, later on, I wound up coming back to Milwaukee, finishing at Pius. And, you know, there's just a huge disconnect. There's that idea of, you know, white 
charity and you know that white gaze, but also how I felt, how I was received. Um, it really was very eye-opening for myself, you know, as a young person, still dealing with regular high school things, but to also feel that responsibility of, you know, I, I don't deserve this. And so that was something that I always kept with me. Later on, I became an educator and I actually spent some time in Beijing when I was 21. And that I think really centered me in that global perspective because now I'm here in a country so far away from home, um, I remember often debating with individuals because they had never seen a Mexican woman before. It was always, oh, you're from India. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, and, you know, really understanding, you know, what was happening in my life being in Beijing, but also looking at United States from far away and seeing how the world um, had a perspective of, of our country. Um, and it was, it was just so formative for me to really go through those situations and to really gain perspectives. And it, it made me want to be an educator. It made me want to help others. Um, but it was also a journey of myself and my own education that was giving myself a sense of freedom because I, I wasn't allowed to learn about my people. And, you know, these are the parts of colonization that a, people, a lot of people don't understand. Like, even for the fact that I'm not perfectly fluent in Spanish, you know, I get to, oh, how come you, you don't know Spanish? You know, this, I'm, I know Spanish, I know slang, I can converse, I can go to any restaurant and do what I want. Um, however, you know, do I call myself bilingual? No, because I do personally feel that until I dream in Spanish, I'm not bilingual and, and that's something I'm gonna hold my standard to. But I also don't need judgment from other people who may know Spanish because they learned coche from a high school teacher who went to Spain once. You know, I don't need judgment on certain parts of you know, who I am. And I, I wasn't allowed to verbalize those things. And now that I've gone through so many different situations, now I figured out not only can I verbalize these things, but I can actually help mentor other activists and community organizers. So they're not dealing with the same biases I dealt with. And, you know, that's where I feel my own personal freedom from all those traumatizing situations is now giving back to others and hoping that they don't have to go through the th same things I went through to understand my own power. And, you know, it's, it's a long journey, I'm not done, I'm constantly learning, but as a lifelong learner, you know, that is my own power and I'm thankful for it. But, you know, there is a lot of changes that still need to happen, especially in this city. And I'm all for our newer organizers being out there. Yeah, right on, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing all that. I, I've uh, heard similar experiences. Um, everyone has a unique experience, but the, that whole, um, constant like living in such a whitewashed culture you know that is so colonialist like that that concept of decolonizing your mind um reductiveness and shit like being you're constantly being like reduced or or being uh minimized um or you know uh spoken over and uh it's it's wonderful that you know that you've uh, been able to reclaim that in your own unique way um and and it hasn't been easy I've, I've made a lot of enemies that they would call me enemy even though i would always call them friend you know i've had a lot of people you know question my intentions but that's okay because you know when when there's changes there's uncomfortableness and you know i was i was literally born into being uncomfortable by being born in this city as a first generation woman so i get it and you know as i say to you know anyone who might not agree with me or my tactics today, I always let them know that I forgive them. You know, at one point they will understand why I do what I do. Um, and I will give you a beautiful example of that in just a moment. 
Um, but you know, I, I've had a lot of situations where I have been with white allies that consider themselves white allies, but because you know my ideas make their ideas uncomfortable, and they don't necessarily see that, you know, they want to move away, and and I have to allow them. They need their own growth space, and when they're ready for me, they'll be ready for me. But it doesn't delineate the path that I'm on and and the things I've chosen to do. Yeah. Um, and again, I have a couple examples of of that changes in, in my evolution here as an organizer, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not as easy as people think. You have to have some tough skin to do that. And, and luckily this melanin is thick and beautiful and it's tough. So we're right ready on. to go with it, but, um, but yeah, it's, it is what it is. And I, I'm not everyone's best friend, you know, but at the end of the day, it, it, I do feel a responsibility to uplift resident voice. And, and that's really at the base of everything that I do. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, your existence should never feel like a chore, you know, like you should never feel like your existence should be silenced to make allies, to cater to allies' comfort, you know, and I, I see a lot of conversations going on um, about that and uh, rightfully so. There's many times where we never thought to be like us as allies and never thought to be uncomfortable or we're, we're afraid to, you know, because part of learning and uh, developing class consciousness is, you know, it, it takes a lot of unpacking and unlearning and uh, everyone has to do that to varying degrees. Um, but that's also the whole point of intersectionality, you know, it, it should be seen as like a, your personal progress, you know, with, with being a, a better person, you know. Exactly. And at the end of the day, we are all human. And I do feel there is a spectrum of allyship that needs to happen. You know, at that beginning part, there might be some uncomfortableness, there might be some unpacking and relearning. You know, at some point, you're going to get to the point where there's more empathy for the other ones. You know, and then hopefully towards the end, this is no longer about how I feel about someone else outside of my race, but am I empowering someone? Am I actually trying to uplift them and put myself completely out of the situation? So now they are just there. And yeah. again, you know, it's not an easy thing, but you know, when we think about how education works and we think about transformational management, which is really what this is to me, is how are we transforming those ideas? There has to be some type of spectrum, you know, yeah. in order to grow. And, you know, there's an amazing educator philosopher that, you know, he informs a lot of my work, Vygotsky, and he has the idea of proximal development. Proximal development, that says, versus taking an individual and saying, jump through this hoop, we go down to the individual's level and we try and raise them one rung at a time until wherever we want them to go. And that is a very, very different message, especially when we're thinking about the information that we're giving our public. We often wanna tell people here, just jump through this and you better get it or you're gonna get in trouble with that. Why? Let's go down to their level and let's understand what they get and let's bring them to where they want them to be together. And we just need to change that right now. And then I'm seeing it slowly, but Thrive is really rooted in that idea. Let's find the individual and let's get them to the next spot together, whoever they might be, an ally or not. That is a hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Empathy is one of the biggest antidotes to, to love and to connectedness with the world and with the universe. And uh, yeah, and even as, you know, angry and upset and uh, disaffected we can, we can get uh, under the harsh um, 
uh, social Darwinism that exists under capitalism, ma maintaining a, a, a semblance of empathy with those that don't have the experience we do is part of revolutionary optimism, as they say. And, Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, for one, when you were when you were younger, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I was told from the age of six until I got to high school that I would be a lawyer because I apparently argue and debate too much. <laughs> um, so that was often told to me. And I think my family just really wanted a lawyer in the family. Uh, we did not have that tuition money for Drea to go to law school. Um, I became an educator instead. Um, sometimes I think right now, like I really should have studied law. I think I would have especially like to study defense law because I don't feel like we have enough unbiased defense attorneys out there. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I was basically told every day that I debate too much. I mean, since the age of six, I've, I've been like this for a very long time. Um, and yeah, I, I think I have a little bit of a Napoleon complex somewhere in there too, that, you know, kind of makes it easy for me to want to debate others. But um, yeah, basically I, I was planning to go into law and then reality you know, for little brown girls that can't get every single scholarship is what it is and became an educator instead. After doing some AmeriCorps and traveling for a little bit, fell in love with education. I'd still be in education right now if it wasn't for systemic racism, but mm. because I was dealing with so many families that were being told that they were not good enough and really they weren't being seen as black and brown families that were trying their best, um, I found that I was more helpful to the community outside of the classroom. And that's when I started transitioning into doing full-time community organizing. That, yeah, that's a perfect segue into continue. I was going to ask you about like how you got involved in community organizing. So, yeah. Um, so you said that, you know, it dawned from systemic racism you experienced in the, in the educational system. Mm -hmm. Uh, yes, from there. And then, you know, I had my children with my second child. She was born in 2013. Uh, when she was very young, I was at that point at home with her. Um, and I got involved with Progressive Moms of Milwaukee. And they were one of the original groups that started going after David Sher uh, Sheriff David Clark. Um, there was a time, I feel like it was 2014 or 15, where a woman had had a stillborn baby in the jail. Um, and at that point, David Clark was already trash and <laughs> had already, you know, just explosive, just done so many wrong things um, in our jails, especially. Um, so we wanted to make an example of that. So we started, um, basically, we started an action where we were delivering diapers to the jail as a message to him and letting him know how we felt about how, you know, people were being treated, especially this woman. Um, unfortunately, I did not stay with Progressive Moms because it, it turned into very much like a white ally group that did not really understand Black and Brown people. Um, it wound up being kind of a negative experience, especially with some of the other leaders. I was one of the lead organizers with two other women. Um, but unfortunately, those women were pretty much, you know, being white allies, um, you know, decent people, but really did not understand what it meant to empower black and brown people without making it seem as if they were telling people what to do. Yeah. You know, th there's a huge difference on how we build capacity on ideas versus just trying to point fingers and tell people what to do. Uh, one of the biggest issues was when um, the pink hats came out for the women's movement and like, everyone needs to wear these pink hats. And I'm like, well, honey, I'm a brown person. I don't look like that. And that's not something I'm necessarily going to put on my head. Um, and that's fine for women who want to, but you know, to have a disagreement like that 
um, this particular group made it seem as if I wasn't welcome at that point. Um, so we had a, a difference of opinion, but it really did teach me that, you know, I, I really am not a person that necessarily wants to work with a mainly white organization. Um, and I was one of the only few women of color in that group, unfortunately. And the reason we had difficulty getting more women of color was because of some trust issues and some of the messages that were sent. Um, so that really made me understand, like, I need to stop, you know, putting myself in these situations where I almost feel like I'm being tokenized. And instead, I need to go ahead and reach out to my own people and make sure that we're lifting each other up. So, um, you know, I, I started that in a variety of ways. I was even involved with the Brown Berets for a little while of Milwaukee. Um, I think but that's, that's the group I first um, uh, knew of you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was like one of the most recent and actually four of us left that original team because there was some ageism issues and leadership was not necessarily open to hearing ideas um, and really empowering each other. So the four of us that left, now we've actually been doing kind of our own actions. Um, a lot of them are involved in this new educational series that I'll be doing. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are helping with um, events with Joel Acevedo as well. A lot of them are working on, uh, you know, also the, the socialism movement, which is dear, dear to my heart as well. Um, so yeah, really just, and, and I think the other big part that I really do love is, you know, the idea of yes, some youth organizers, the idea of voices. I mean, there's so many other organizations that I really feel are much more powerful versus like five, six years ago, we're in a yeah. different space now. Um, and so it's, it's been very powerful, but to have that progressive moms move, uh, issue happen, it really does inform me how there are some great allies out there, but there's a lot that really are on their educational journey that they need to put that mic down. And yeah. I'm happy to say that to anybody if I need to. So, yeah, so yeah. yeah. absolutely. And I, I agree. Um, I, I think that um, like the second that allies find themselves like making things more about themselves than about uh those those communities that they're trying to serve that's when they need to take a step back and uh, look inwardly um because there's more decolonizing and unpacking uh great things to to be con cognizant of like you know treading carefully on like when to speak and when not to and asking when to as well um and i think at the end of the day the, the biggest tool we have is listening you know there, there should be a moment where you come and listen. And, you know, I've been involved in groups with planning and I've had them say, you know, I'll be like, oh, you know, there's this amazing event, you know, 12th and Valide, we're gonna be doing X, Y, and Z. And I would often have people because they felt comfortable with me, look at me and say, are we allowed there? And then my answer back would always be like, is this your city or not? Because if you're asking me if you're yeah. allowed to be there, that means you're afraid to be there. You know, because that makes no sense, you know? You know, if you want to help, help. If not, stay home. You have a difference. Right. Do whatever you need. Yeah. And no one can, no one should be claiming Milwaukee as their city if they are afraid to go anywhere in Milwaukee. Exactly. I'm talking to the, to the East Side College kids. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which uh, I lived over there and it is very insular. Um, you know, it, it feeds into the cultural segregation and that is, that is unfortunate. Also, big shout out to, because uh, you, you had uh, alluded to them, a uh, big shout out to Juan Miguel and Cesar. Uh, oh, yeah. Love, I love the interview you did with them, by the way. Thank, thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, 
they're so great. Uh, that was that was a great, and I I just really appreciate Cesar a lot because uh, he he just has so much energy for so much being part of so many things. Uh, big shout out to the unemployed council on um, getting folks uh, that you know, uh, are struggling financially in this time to get on unemployment. Big shout out to Ayuda Muta. Muta, uh, yeah. Muta, yeah. Um, a food bank, which is getting fresh food to hundreds of families on the South side as well. Um, yeah, I I don't know how he like has so much, like he's part of so many things and I'm just amazed by his work. And and Juan Miguel too, for getting the, the, the union uh, conversation going uh, on these streets. Um, they organized that picket outside of Whole Foods. And that was awesome. I think also too, when, when you live the work that you are leading, which is the best part about Cesar, like he's so great about giving his perspective and he's living this life in so many ways. You know, he's gone through these experiences. He's gotten, you know, the profiling and to still come out of those, you know, toxic situations and still say, I want to organize and make sure other people aren't dealing with this is yeah. just so beautiful and so powerful. And I just am so thankful that, you know, him and I are able to collaborate on ideas because we really do need those real perspectives. Like who actually has a lived experience here? Who are the stakeholders? And let's lift up those, those voices. And I'm very lucky that they keep me around <laughs> because I'm the nerd with the spreadsheet being like, all right, let's throw this all in an Excel and get it there. And that's where my brain is. So, so it's, yeah. a, it's a very happy, happy team that we have. Also, Lady Cypher X is a part of the team. She's been doing a lot of things. Oh, yeah. Um, she's incredible. La Comunidad and On the Rise are two of her pages. Also, Camila, um, she's another organizer doing a lot of amazing work to the full, the, um, well, yeah, now, yeah, the four of us now, um, all together, we have been doing some great things where we kind of just tag on each other ideas and we see where we can support each other. And it's kind of like an informal little group, but really, you know, it's, it's a good check and balance for seeing what all of our various organizations are doing and making sure that our residents are being prioritized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And um, to have like, all of those parts of Milwaukee, you know, those, the disenfranchised, the underfunded, um, the impoverished, um, to have them every square inch of, of those neighborhoods accounted for and recognized and not just the parts, the, the glamorous parts that all of, you know, Milwaukee city budget goes towards or the fucking police department mm -hmm. to, to bring organizers into these neighborhoods and uh let them know that like you know we we're here to serve you you know and even if it even if the, the government isn't serving you like they should be um it is very empowering to see that um yeah cesar and i uh we're on a coalition together uh for uh, a recent action we did with um it was never again action with Voces de la frontera and kenosha um, and, uh, we organized outside of the Kenosha detention center and, um, definitely, uh, got some, uh, unfriendly looks and, uh, I definitely did not want to walk into the gas station wearing my party for socialism and liberation shirt, but, <laughs> um, it was a great action. Uh, and Cesar was a real trooper, uh, being a marshal and, 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 uh, we, we still had a great turnout and it was very moving hearing, uh, a lot of the speeches 
um, and the speakers. We heard from Justin Blake, uh, Jacob Blake's uncle, and our liberation is liberation for all. You know, we were immigrants once and we were not welcome in many parts of the world. And most Jewish thing you can do is be, is to stand for those that are, their very existence is threatened. Absolutely. And I love that you keep mentioning the intersectionality because uh, that's the difference. Like the, this country is set up for us to look at our differences, but there are so many connections, especially as you look at our history. So as we, you know, build capacity and try to empower for certain things to happen, you know, we really, really do need to focus on what our similarities are. And there are just so many wonderful ones out there. And you know, they really do come at the demise of the people because there is, it's so hard to get that education into the hands of everyone to really understand. And especially us as brown people, you know, our education, our history has been colonized so much. You know, there's a huge divide on Latinx people in this last presidential election. You yep. can see it, but you know, that is colonization working because they have actually think, they actually think that this is the right way to go and to actually you know, to have the genocide at the border, they actually think that's a positive thing. And, you know, we have so much work to do to fix that. But again, this new generation coming up of leaders makes me so proud. They are probably the wokest, most educated, and I'm happy to do what I can to mentor, to help. And I often, you know, at whenever I can, I often, you know, give my services for free. How can I help you? What do you need? Um, and that's just something I do because I, I at, at the end of the day, I'm serving the little girl that lives inside of me that didn't have those choices growing up. So I'm always happy to do that. And that's something that I'm very proud of. Of course. And yeah. Uh, so what you're saying got me thinking about the divisions that have occurred in the Jewish community as a result of this past election cycle as well. Um, and, you know, it really broke my heart to see a lot of folks that I grew up with in the Jewish community that, you know, chose to endorse such a hateful bigot and uh, wondering just like why, you know, and, and what you said is, is the, the us versus them rhetoric and systemic apparatus that is America, like is exactly what perpetrates that feeling of like, you know, we all have to just be in it for ourselves. And if, if you, if I can get rich, then that's all I care about. And, uh, you know, anything that threatens that because, you know, it's going to tax me more and, and put more money in the hands of poor people. It's the constant, um, that individualism coming back to that, you know, it's where I, I see that where it's like, you know, everyone in America in order, like the whole, uh, like foundation of the American dream is to live for yourself and not to live for anyone else. Most species of animals don't operate like that themselves in, in, in their, you know, social conditioning and stuff, you know, like we have emotions, you know, we, the whole idea of love and uh, based around connectedness and fostering and cultivating positive relationships with yourself and with the world your surroundings and with the world around you and uh, part of that is making the world a better place and mm -hmm. and these so-called like evangelicals or orthodox religious people you know that like live in just such like insular mindsets of like 
where they only like are voting on one issue or something like that. It's like, how is like, how is that like making the world a better place? It's making a world a better place on your own terms. And that's why like, I try to approach everything with an abolitionist perspective of like, hey, if this shit is not working, if it's, or if it's dividing us into classes, you know, if it's perpetrating individualism and putting profit before people, then you know, it shouldn't be there. You know what it does remind me often, and I don't, I think, you know, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but I cannot help but make parallels with Stockholm syndrome, you know, where you are almost empathizing with your captor. And I I think that has happened for a lot of people, it's not just people of the Jewish faith, but, you know, even people of, you know, Latinx individuals, Black people, where you almost have a version of Stockholm syndrome, where you feel, if I'm going to get through this, I need to be very nice and show face to these individuals if I'm going to survive this. And, you know, I, I fear that in so many ways, especially for, you know, individuals that are, you know, Gen X generation, um, you know, boomer generation, like a lot of those, especially that feel like you need to act and be a certain way and, and, and in order to survive. And that is simply not the case. That is, again, the colonizer pulling wool over your eyes. And, you know, to balance that out, it is the people coming together with the truth. And, you know, it's slowly but surely because capitalist dollars definitely don't mind putting the wool over people's eyes and having them be sheep. Um, But I really do see a lot of power. And the weirdest thing, which I'm thankful for in a lot of weird ways is this pandemic. Like the weirdest thing is because, you know, we're on Zoom life and the thought we'd all be separated and isolated really it's gotten people to sit there and pay attention more and we've actually recorded more and we've documented more and we have made efforts to actually come together and consolidate our ideas and make a plan of action of what we actually want um so it it wind up being you know a you know a blessing in disguise but you know honestly i don't i don't think we would be as far as we are in this movement had this pandemic not happened because it really did force people to sit the fuck down and pay attention and i love it i'm here for it <laughs> same oh oh yeah same uh i i totally agree like it's uh because it 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 forced us to like you know take a you know to to detach ourselves from the fast-paced like yeah hyper aware culture of like you know what's going on like in our immediate surroundings and to, to look more like in an objective point of view and observing what's happening around the world and to people we love and care about, to our, to our communities, to our cities, look at it more for like, to, for what it is and for how it's treating people and how it always, quite frankly, has been. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just haven't really like sat down to really like, you know, to look around and, and, and gaze at, at it. And uh, that's, and so, yeah, like, thankfully, I, I, I've seen like, and I'm definitely one of them uh, where, um, a lot of folks got very in the last year got like sharply radicalized and uh, like really started you know subscribing to more uh, leftist perspectives and being louder and prouder in their radical demands because it doesn't even really seem that radical at the end of the day it just seems like hum- it seems humane you know, where you recognize where our money is and that we have the money to afford a lot of these things that should be human rights, but are instead, as as you said, uh, you know, 
it's just not always profitable to make them human rights. And the political Stockholm syndrome, I, I, that is a real thing for sure too. And uh, yeah, like, um, so that that said, so tell me about your um, your work with uh, uh, SOC with Southside Organizing Center. Yes, so I've been at Southside Organizing Center since June of 2019. I'm their leadership coordinator. I'm very, very thankful for this organization. It's been around for over 30 years. Um, it's a beautiful organization. And one of the things that I love the most about it is that all the employees that are there from our executive director to our canvassers even must live in the district that we serve. So we serve the near South side. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a beautiful thing because we're automatic stakeholders here. I'm not going every day to Menominee Falls or to Mequon and then coming back to serve the South side. I live and I breathe everything that the other residents do and that that does inform me and my commitment to this work to be very different so you know that's something that i hope more organizations can mimic because there, i think there is more power when you actually have people who are living in the areas that they're serving and you know quite often i'm seeing a lot of you know big ceos a lot of people making big checks where you know they're part of a lot of decisions that affect milwaukeeans but then they're leaving every day to suburbs and they really don't understand what- Going to Brookfield or some shit. Exactly, like get the hell out of here. Go, right. go to the mall, dude. Um, you know, and I, you know, I think we are making uh, better decisions and we are advocating, you know, for almost like a, a feedback loop from resident to some of these um, executive directors to make sure that we're actually using these, you know, grant monies in a responsible way and that we're not only building capacity, but we're also empowering our residents and uplifting them up so they themselves can continue doing that in other arenas, which is very important for this work and to keep it going. Um, uh, I help run the Gold Institute, which is grassroots organizing leadership development. Mm -hmm. Our executive director, uh, Tammy Rivera, is our lead trainer in that institute. So I help her coordinate. I help her with support documents. I help getting residents there. It's a monthly cohort that we do. Um, very, very powerful work. When I, when I first started there, I was actually running for county supervisor at the time. Um, wound up losing my first election by 38 votes. Uh, in, in March of 2020, which was not that bad considering that I spent maybe 5% of what my opponent spent and that the pandemic was just starting. So that last month I could not knock on doors. Um, so to lose by 38, uh, 38 votes to win my primary, um, it really did teach me so much. And I, I ran for office, not really because I wanted to, I ran for the office. I tend to be kind of a person that's like, let me do it a little experiment. Let me let me see what happens, because we often hear, especially from white allies, that you know fair representation is important, but we also are not necessarily cultivating those opportunities to have fair representation. And a lot of that has to do again with that dollar. You know, we might have a white ally that they donate more to a certain organization and they, they get their trust. Or, you know, maybe they, you know, they might have a business that is supporting someone with in-kind things. They might get more trust. So, you know, where is that line? Because, I mean, I, I love white men. My, my children's father is a white man. However, I am sick of them at all the boards and the tables and commissions. We've heard of them. It's redundant. We need to change that. So, you know, really what it came to is, okay, well, Dre is going to do an experiment. We're going to run for office and we're going to see where it's going to go. And no one expected it, you know, and I was, you know, I, I talk a good game. I did my research. Um, I was able to get on the ballot. 
Um, I was able to get some good endorsements. And, and again, coming from nothing, I, I, you know, I was not active in every single organization. I was active with all the resident groups because that's a different vibe. And I feel like we don't have enough representation there. Um, but, you know, Citizen Action, I wasn't necessarily donating to them every year. Um, bosses, you know, I became a member, but, you know, I, as a single mom, I didn't always have the money to donate every single time. You know, organizations I love, but, you know, these are also organizations that do endorsements. And the question that comes up often is, are you doing an endorsement because this person is going to help your mission? Or are you doing an endorsement because this person is right for this district and you actually went to the residents and you empowered their voice and you got their opinion? Because that's a very different thing just versus just going to your donor list and your team list and finding someone there. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to see if people would put their money where their mouth is. And I, I think I gave a lot of people things to understand because my opponent at the time, who, you know, he did win. I do support him. He's my representations right now. So he actually does answer to me as a constituent, which I'm also very proud of. Um, but I did want to see what, what people would do with this. Like, you know, would you hear me out? You know, and I had a lot of situations like, um, you know, for example, where, you know, some major endorsements, I wasn't even allowed an interview because I was told I didn't donate enough. So it's like, okay, are you really for black and brown people? You won't even give me an interview, like deny me after the interview, that's fine. Give me your checklist and deny me after that, that's fine. Allow me an opportunity to fail first. So, you know, don't just not allow me at all to even fail, at least allow me to fail. Um, that's the least you can do if you wanna seem like an equitable organization. And so what I decided to do with that energy because I learned so much from it is now I'm doing a lot of actor, active mentorship of other individuals. So, you know, community organizers through leadership developments like gold, um, through consulting with businesses, I'm finding different ways to, you know, how can I take someone with their vision, their idea, and how can I get them to the next level? Um, and that's been a variety. I, I try and make myself as successful as possible. But one of the, you know, one of the great things I'm proud of is um, my Milwaukee um, um, intersection action intersection they're the organizations that they're doing all the djs at um all the the voting sites have you seen those at all oh, yeah, yeah, such yeah. i love my they're so great but you know they were one of the first ones that i started consulting with centering them around their vision and mission helping them understand what an action plan is um i do that with a lot of uh teens that are also organizing um i do it also with a lot of college students that are looking to get more involved um, and I always give the same deal with any any younger organization. I give you three sessions. You know, we'll talk on Zoom. Uh, any of those three sessions, you have me for anything you want. You know, whatever action you want, whatever you need centered on. Um, after that, I can't because clearly, you know, I'm a single mom. I still need to put food on the table and make myself available for that. But you know, that's my small way of giving back because I did not have those opportunities as as a younger organizer. I learned everything through trial and error and sometimes I royally messed up and sometimes I, I learned how to give an apology. And, you know, it is what it is, you know, it's, it's not a perfect system, but if now I can save someone from those mistakes, I'm happy to do it because again, we just need all hands on deck right now to really get where we want. So it's been rewarding. Um, having more people embrace technology has helped because I can't be at all the places at once, but you know, it's something that does save my heart at the end of the day, because like I always say, I'm always serving that little girl that lives inside of me that never had that chance. So, so that's something I'm really proud of. Great. Oh, yeah. I'm proud of you too. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, and yeah, 
hey, 38 votes, like that's a pretty close call. That's a very close call. Yeah, and, and what does that tell you though? Let, let's think about what that story tells you, you know, to win the primary, to lose by 38 votes, to know that I spent 5%, that tells me that people really do want, you know, the representation of a brown woman in, in District 4. And one thing I'm especially proud of is the last, um, the last um, census numbers, those have not been released yet. We're hoping they come out very soon, but they it's probably not gonna be looking until like May or June now. Um, but from those numbers, there is a good chance that we can have another Latinx majority district, which yeah. would be our second one here. Um, that would mean that uh, Bayview would be cut, the, the Bayview wards would be cut out and added into a different area. And we would instead add some of the wards a little bit closer to Silver City area. Um, but if we have the numbers to do it, let's do it. We need yeah. more voices, especially at the county board. And the county board is especially, you know, personal to me because those are our social services. Those are our parks. I'm also, a, you know, a previous science educator as well. So, you know, really to have that voice. And again, you know, this is no disrespect to the individuals that are serving the board now. I'm proud of all of them. I'm happy to work with all of them. You know, they're all wonderful people, even, you know, the one that I lost to, but you know, it's still, it, it really does paint the narrative that, gosh, you know, I spent 5%. I couldn't, I couldn't knock on doors that last month. I couldn't even afford mailers, you know, and I was denied endorsements because I didn't donate enough for certain groups. However, I still got as close as 38 points. So what does that say? And right. that's something that guides me every day as I'm mentoring other people to hopefully run for office themselves. Yeah, of course. So, so all those you know, you, you, you keep referring to the little girl with like inside yourself of like, you know, all the things you felt like you couldn't do or you, or you didn't have, you know, like you went out and you did it or you're fighting for, it. you know, you've, you've gotten really close and to, to, as you said, beating the system of like that, that puts money first, like that, you know, we keep talking about like, you know the the donors and stuff and and how money talks you know money money is has, has it, it has so much influence in electoralism and for you to get that far and and like you know almost almost completely overtake it, it like that that does speak a lot and and it's also speaking to the shifting uh the, the shift in like in uh priority uh, for for a lot of people, for a lot of voters, because a lot of voters are um, they're they're disaffected right now. They're they're discouraged. They don't think that their vote counts or that it matters because of everything. Because they're more like co conscious of how the system works. Um, but that's amazing that you know, like you took you're taking that experience um, that you had and. Uh, are empowering um, young folks, uh, young brown women, uh, to to do a lot of the same things and and win, and that's yeah, that's that's awesome. That's uh, very heartwarming. Thank you, thank you, and also, you know, I just want to also be very clear that one thing that a lot of people don't understand, and I'm very thankful to Isaiah Holmes from the, the Wisconsin Examiner. Shout out to Isaiah. Yeah. He's the best, isn't he? He's just he's great. Such a great human being. Um, and actually what a, a lot of people don't even understand is the one thing I hear a lot, especially from black and brown people is, 
um, no one ever, elected elect official wise, they never come to our door unless they want something. No one ever knocks here. And what a lot of people don't understand is if you use the van, are you familiar with the van? I'm not actually. Okay, so I, I believe it's voter activation network. So what it is, is it's a system, it's a database of all the registered voters. And so when you run for office, you pay to use a van and that creates your turfs and the areas that you're gonna door knock on them. And what I was told exclusively is stick to Bayview for district four. They're like, just hit Bayview as hard as possible. Um, don't go into Polonia where I live, which is around, you know, 12th in Oklahoma. Don't go to, you know, the Silver City areas. Don't go any of those places. Stick to Bayview. And why is that? It's because that's where they have more of the verified voters. And again, why does it happen? Because there's more homeowners there versus as you get more west, you're going to be dealing with more renters. Um, and I was flabbergasted when I was told that I was like, I got to go to my own neighborhood <laughs> to knock on doors. And they're like, it's not worth it because you don't know if that's going to be a certified house or, or not. Mm -hmm. Like you might be wasting your time. And like, I'm like, it's still, you know, I, I still want to be there. I still want them to see me there, you know, going to the resident groups, going and knocking on those doors. And so what winds up happening, because again, from the resident perspective in certain neighborhoods are like, they never show up here. They never knock on our doors. They only want something, you know, they're only here when they want something. But the system is set up that a candidate doesn't feel like it's worth their time to go there. And that was something I hugely pushed back on. I actually felt like I did double or triple the work because I still knocked on those doors. I still hit up Bayview and did what I had to do to get those numbers. But, and this is going to be something that, uh, Sylvia Ortiz, who's been doing incredible work with um, these census numbers and redistricting, and she's such a great mentor of mine. Um, something she brought to my attention recently, that if you actually look at my particular race and you get rid of all the Bayview wards, they, I would actually have, I would have actually won by 59%. Now, if you put back in those wards and you look at those, uh, the Bayview wards by itself, that actually is covering about 56% of that vote. So no matter what, Bayview is already making it that we can't have fair representation, which is just an injustice because I'm just, I'm like, sorry, like, you know, Bayview should not be so heavily weighed on these elections, but unfortunately it is. And unfortunately, Bayview is a great place. I love it. My children live half of their, you know, half of their week there with their father. It's a place that we go to all the time. However, it's also a very, you know, heavily white, you know, place. And, you know, I've definitely had a lot of people, you know, profile me, follow me, like have issue with me as a brown woman there. Um, you know, it, it's not the most diverse, welcoming place in the world either, even though I do have a lot of great friends there. Um, so it really does become an eye-opening situation. Like how much is Bayview actually hurting us from having fair representation? And on these numbers and what Sylvia Ortiz is saying, it, it's hugely weight. So I'm extremely ecstatic for these census numbers to come out because it looks like we're finally gonna have our second mainly Latinx district, which we are solely overdue for. Oh, great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, great, yeah. Is So is this, is this like, a, is this like, the result of gerrymandering like what what's so yeah i mean at the at the the long term of all this this is a result of gerrymandering um you know at one point there was changes in the last census 
where some numbers had been switched over. I, you know, and there was definitely some politicians that had a little bit of extra say than they should have. Um, these particular ones are not in office anymore, and I'm not here to throw mud on anyone. You know, they made the decisions that they thought they were making for the best interest of the people. We now know otherwise. We also know that we, again, have worked very hard, especially these last 10 years, um, to really empower Latinx individuals. And we have more homeowners, you know, more, you know, college educated Latinx people than ever before. So the tide has turned. So now these voices cannot be ignored anymore. Um, and, and that's the interesting thing about Milwaukee, you know, it's so segregated here, but 10 years really does make a huge, huge difference. And I'm excited for the next 10 years. And frankly, I think we should be looking at some of these census numbers at a five-year increment. You know, we should be normalizing this more often because there's so much, you know, tax dollars that are tied to these services. And it is really, it's really difficult sometimes to wait. And those numbers, by the way, should already been released they're being debated right now at the powers that be, but hopefully very soon we'll have, have the numbers out and we can actually realign the borders in a way that's more fair for the people. Shout out to the census. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and to census takers. Um, yeah. Uh, Especially this year, they really did put their, them, themselves on the line this year and Southside Organizing Center, that's one of the main things they do every year is that census works. I'm so thankful. Of course, yeah, and absolutely. Like to sustain the the equity and the representation that Milwaukee deserves and and needs for the sake of all of its communities, not just those that are you know majority white, majority homo, like all homeowners, and or gentrified even. I guess we could talk about Thrive. I'd love to hear more about Thrive. And so it's been going for uh, since, since 2010. Uh, so over a decade now, uh, congrats. Thank you. Um, it being uh, such a, you know, uh, an enduring endeavor. So uh, yeah, tell me a little bit about like what you first envisioned uh, when uh, you started Thrive Service Learning. Yeah, Thrive Service Learning at its heart is really, you know, taking transformational management, um, getting individuals from one place to another in a holistic manner um, to empower them. It started in 2010. Um, in 2007, I was a classroom teacher. I was teaching a third grade classroom. The next year I was asked to move to four or five. Um, so I was with these families for three years and then they went to middle school. And I had a number of families that wanted me to continue to do one-on-one -on -one work with their students. And we were you know, definitely family by then and they were just so incredible. Um, so I was able to do uh, a lot of personal work, whether it was gifted and talented work with some of these students or it was intervention work. Um, and it was something that just kind of evolved with me as I changed and you know, in 2013, I had my second child and there was an opportunity for me to work from home. So then Thrive kind of became a place where, you know, I was, um, I was tutoring fam uh, families. I was also doing um, some informal childcare out of my home. And because I was at home, I was also starting to do um, more events and activities. And I started working with Progressive Moms of Milwaukee uh, as one of their lead organizers. And we were uh, one of the organizations that actually started doing actions against the, at the time, Sheriff Clark when a woman had died in the jail. Um, 
unfortunately, my time with Progressive Moms was short because it really did teach me the lesson about intersectional feminism mm -hmm. and really what white feminism and that gaze can be. And as one of the few women of color on that team, and I was very proud because it was small when I joined it, but through some of the outreach work and the organizations that I had partnered with, especially some of the educators I knew, and also because I knew a lot of women that were involved with Brew City Bruisers because I'm a firm, former Derby member, um, mm -hmm. it was really easy for me to get a lot, uh, to get our numbers up and to get a lot more members. Um, and we were very successful in our actions. However, you know, I was often reminded from the other two organizers that were white women that, you know, I mean, it was even to the point one time where I was told that I had to get permission to post on my own Facebook page because how I post things on my personal page could reflect upon them. And that's when I had to kind of cut them off saying like, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not doing this today, lady. Um, and, you know, basically it, it taught me to understand that, you know, while I can work with white allies, I really do need to be a woman who is also uplifting my own and getting ourselves in perspectives. And, and I don't want to be in a situation where someone is asking me permission to be at an event because it's in a certain neighborhood. That's really someone saying I'm uncomfortable. And I, that's their own journey. And, you know, everyone is going to be uncomfortable in some, you know, area of their life. I know I definitely was a six-year-old, you know, trying to help my parents and translate things. So, you know, it happens. I get it. Um, but it's not my job to sit here and make white people comfortable. It is my job to inform. It is my job to empower. It is my job to make sure that my community is getting everything that it, it needs to survive. But, you know, some great things did come out of that relationship. One of the things that I was really proud of is uh, the first drag story time came out of that. It's now a national version um, mm. of it. And I, I love the... Um, it's on hold because of COVID, but you know, the, it wound up evolving into a national membership with Drag Storytime. At the end of the day, Drag Storytime is about empowerment for me. Um, I, I was a reading teacher, so it was really easy for me to do a literacy event, but my intention from the beginning was, you know, I'm not LGBTQ+, so it was to get that transition, and we were able to do that, um, but at the beginning, because of Progressive Moms of Milwaukee and because of the reach we had, um, and because I love doing empowerment work, especially with families, um, that's one of the great successful events that actually came out of that relationship. Um, but I did have to cut off things with them because it, it became toxic and I started being treated as if I was their employee versus their equal, which is, I just don't have time for, for small-minded things like that. Um, and I started branching out on my own. Um, Thrive kind of evolved along the way of all that. Um, and really at the heart of Thrive, um, when we think about service learning, it's the idea of taking academics and um, wrapping them around community service. Yeah. And so I take that idea, but I do it directly with families and communities versus doing it in the school setting. So for example, one thing could be like, yeah, let's do a community cleanup, but this can also be an opportunity for a science lesson. You know, we can sit here and we can, you know, make a hypothesis and we can explore and find out learning through it. We could, you know, even, you know, maybe, I don't even know, maybe we do an art project out of this. Let's find some fine garbage and let's create something now that's actually beneficial. So there's so many different things that you can do with service learning. And for me, service learning is going to be the quickest, most holistic way to save our city. 
because I really do feel like we need to empower each other. We need to learn. I feel there's so many parents that had such a negative experience in in schooling growing up that they're very anti-education now. And you can see it by some of the decisions that are happening. But, you know, really it's where the heart of empowerment lies. So, you know, really taking an idea, let's say a law change, um, and really understanding it to the point that we're empowering people so they're able to not worry about, you know, that they're going to break the law, but actually that they're able to live a life that they can be empowered by the fact that the law exists. And there's a fine line there, but that's what Thrive tends to do is, you know, how can we get these big ideas and how can we empower residents by them so they are able to have a stronger life because of it. Um, One of the new ones that we're coming up, it's going to be coming up on May 18th, and I'm very proud of. Um, Thrive is one of many groups organizing this um, event, but it's going to be legalized MKE. It's going to be an educational series on marijuana, because right now we just recently passed in our county. Anything under 25 grams is going to be a dollar fine if you are found with it. Um, The city is right now, it's it's at the um, Public Health Committee. We're hoping by, I think, May 4th, it's going to be going to the Common Council, but they are going to be looking at, you know, not having any fine under 28 ounces, which is, an I'm sorry, 28 grams, which is actually what one ounce is. Um, and now it begs the question with, okay, if I don't get a fine for a certain amount of grams, then now what am I allowed to do without getting in trouble? And that is a very important line that we're actually going to be inviting uh, John Chisholm, the DA, also uh, Sheriff Lucas, also MPD will be representative. We're still waiting on that one to be finalized, but um, Shantia Lewis will be there. Senator Lena Taylor will be there. County Supervisor Ortiz and also a dear friend, Eric Marsh from We Can will be there on a panel. And our hope is to collect community questions that they have about this law. And we get on record law enforcement saying what they will and will not go after for people. And there's a lot of gray areas there. For example, you know, let's say I have a joint um, and I am on a patio at a bar and I spark it up and I'm clearly under 25 grams. You know, can I get in trouble because I'm on private property? Um, You know, let's say that the owner feels a certain way about marijuana. Maybe they're fine with it. Maybe it's not. Where is that? Where is the line at? So people know what they need to do, especially because we know trauma numbers are so high with COVID you know, it's almost expected people are self-medicating and we have so many unemployed people without, you know, without um, uh, medical insurance that I I expect them to be self-medicating. And at the end of the day, marijuana, however you feel, it's a colonized medicine in my mind, you know, especially being a a Mexican woman, you know, this was taking away from us. I, I feel I would much rather have someone stoned than have anyone drunk around me in a hot second. Like, yeah, let's go share some munchies together. But, you know, once you're wasted and drunk, you know, now public safety is a huge factor, you know, and, and you know, honestly, our, our city and our state, I mean, they are so pro-alcohol. I mean, I really do feel like those are the powers that are being making legalization impossible. Yeah. People act like people make their, their entire personalities, act, like they model their personalities after it. It's, it is excessive, you know, yeah. even as somebody who is a, uh, an avid beer drinker, it, it, can, it is, it is uh, alarming. It can be un, very unsafe, you know, especially, especially around the holidays. Yes, yes. And, and now let's consider the combination of those. Like, what if I go to a tailgate and I get drunk 
And then I drive and, you know, maybe someone smells marijuana on me. Could I get pulled over? Could I not get pulled over? Like, what does the combinations of these laws look like? And so our hope is we're going to get law enforcement to answer community questions on record. And this is, as, as far as I understand, this is the first time this has ever happened in our city where we actually get them to say on record what is allowed, what is not allowed. And then we can use that going forward if there may be any profiling or any other issues. Because otherwise, what other leverage do we have until we have legislative change, which we know is like watching paint dry sometimes. <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, let's get something so people feel comfortable. And, and again, I mean, I do expect people to want to smoke um, because we're essentially landlocked by recreational. In a few weeks, Minnesota will be passed as well, besides Iowa, but who the heck's going to Iowa? I mean, we're pretty much landlocked by recreational weed at this point, you know, and, and at what point does this become a violation to our people for not actually wanting to get this tax money and not actually wanting to help people that are in crisis right now? Because really, I mean, it's not a drug. It really does need to have its classification changed. You know, I understand, you know, you know, I do a lot of work also with sex tra trafficking victims and opiate addictives. I'd rather have them smoking a joint than trying to shoot up any day. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. And now right. let's add in our veterans, our veterans as well. You know, right. people that serve their country that we literally treat like trash. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning, you know, this is an opportunity for them. So again, yeah. the hope is, you know, let's let's bring some community education into this. You know, let's get it on record. And this yeah. is where the power lies. And, right. and our hope is this gets replicated with other law changes, yeah. you know, because we really do need people to understand these are your rights. You are allowed to do this and not just tell people you can't do this, you can't do that. And then we surprise them when they do something that we don't like. And that just can't happen anymore. And potentially maim or murder them, which exactly, you know, exactly. Like which, you know, I hate to go there, but that, that has but we happened. we have to, we have yes, to. Yes, it has happened. We're being conditioned to, that that's normalized now. It's, it's right. been conditioned to us. And this is why no justice, no peace, and we're not going away anytime soon. Right, exactly. And we're gonna stand up and fight back. And um, and there's, so, there's a lot of great things you touched on. Um, you know, the, the conversation about, you know, reclassifying marijuana as as a medicine you know as as a remedy as a as a form of therapy even like you know this because you're you're also a, you, you've been a science teacher you know like and you work you work with stem people like mm -hmm. about like you know the, the science doesn't lie that mm -hmm. that marijuana and even even lsd in in some patient or psilocyl said i mean hallucinogenics are another uh that's another conversation but it's yeah. like but like but the research it, exists for sure. it does yeah and and the the um the the medical and recreational merit is is statistically proven it can help people overcome trauma or uh chronic illness and also that that is attached to the conversation of decriminalizing all drugs and turning like why like instead of treating addicts like criminals let's treat just treat them as we would any other people that are sick you know like it's it's a it becomes a medical issue you know like like you know decriminalizing drugs like in and of itself would also greatly reduce drastically reduce our incarcerations 
that would just slash the crime rate as well. It's like a domino effect. You know, all these conversations are so interconnected. And what you said, I like what you also said about service learning because um, I, so I went to UWM and uh, I took a film class, uh, a multicultural film class that was a service learning course. I did my um, film that, uh, the, like the big semester project, uh, did it from working at Hunger Task Force. And I was just a freshman. It was my first semester ever in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, doing and helping out with, uh, you know, food packaging um, with a food bank. Uh, it was just in time for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Being able to, like, you know, get loads of, of really, like, delicious food um, to, you know, um, to families around Milwaukee. Like, I, I, I feel like even, in, even, like, at the time, I didn't realize just how much weight that work carries. Because uh, I was just a... 18 year old kid you know when I but now looking back like seven years later like wow you know it's like feeding helping feed the city is like it surpasses the theory and uh, transcends into the the application of theory and that and it's that is such a really vital piece of education um it's like it go it's sort of like what they say about how like you know you need internships to like get jobs certain places and stuff and like get a get like practical skills in addition to just the the, the book skills be able to like apply these things you're learning in, in, in academia in real time um that those are vital tools um to um to, to being well-rounded and having a worldly perspective and uh, and changing mindsets, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Shout out to service learning, definitely. Um, it's, it's a very, uh, very beneficial and uh, insightful experience doing that. Yes, and I, my hope is to make it more accessible to families. You know, right now we have great institutes. At, you know, there's a service learning department at UW Milwaukee. I've, I've been able to partner with. Also, Marquette has one. I. I believe Alverno has a version of one. They don't necessarily call it that, not a department does that, but you know, they definitely do a lot of community work. You know, it's becoming more normalized. A lot more high schools are utilizing it a lot more. Even K-8s, you know, they might require maybe 10 hours a semester, at least before COVID, you know, and so that's wonderful. But you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to the fact that service learning does provide more opportunity for transformational management. You really need to be in it to really understand it, to really get us to the next level together. So, yes, absolutely. So, yeah. And, and that being said, so uh, if folks want to learn more about Thrive, uh, what can they do? Well, they can email me for sure, thrivemke at gmail.com. Um, my website is right now down, um, but I will be launching a new one. Uh, it went to my campaign website, drea4mke.com was it originally, but I'm in the middle of switching it right now because I have been doing so many different uh, projects and meeting with different people. I've decided that I really do in this next month need to center um, a lot of my work back on my website. So people have a clear way of getting a hold of me. Um, I asked, also I'm gonna be adding on some service learning templates and planning documents that I've created um, that I want to allow other people to utilize so they can personalize them on their own. 
Um, so just different tools that I've kind of collected over the years or created over the years that I'll be soon putting it on there. So, you know, if anybody wants to go ahead and, and take those ideas and use them, I, I'm all for it. It's, it's all for helping the community. So, um, so yeah, that's one way people can still get a hold of me on Facebook. Um, I, I run a couple social media pages. Um, I also am one of the lead admins for Parents Against Racism, which is rooted here in Milwaukee. Uh, again, I do a, a lot of, of educational things there. Um, the other thing I try to do, especially because I am a single parent, um, is I try and make things as accessible as possible. Because a lot of people, you know, we always talk about the spectrum of activism, you know, whether you're starting out at a basic rally, you know, maybe you did an email, maybe you're getting a little deeper and you're, you know, you're reading books and you're showing up to meetings and maybe you're going full force like me where you are actually doing large scale actions, you know, and I always tell people, it really doesn't matter where you are in the spectrum. And there's been parts of my my life where I go to different points of the spectrum depending on what Drea needs as an individual. Yeah. Um, and that's okay, but to still contribute is something. So, you know, often my actions are rooted in accessibility. So, you know, I might have an action where it's like, okay, you know, send this email out and you can do this from your home, or I actually need you to show up and help or something. And I tend to offer a variety of asks because I want to catch people where they're at. And I want to make sure that they know it doesn't matter if you, you know, you give five bucks. It doesn't matter if you are at every single meeting. It doesn't matter if you can never be anywhere and all you did was share the post all of it counts and all of it is helping the movement. So to still, you know, dedicate yourself to the movement and whatever you're willing to give, just do it because it's a place that we get further today than we were yesterday. So one thing I like to do is making sure, you know, especially families, especially parents like me, they know their place in the movement and they understand whatever they give is still giving. And so a lot of my actions tend to be things that are family friendly, safe, you can do it virtually, you can show up. I give options because again, it's more important that, that we have the supports. Oh yeah, love that. Yes, you're right, yeah, absolutely. Like everyone has different levels of ability to help progress. You know, like not everyone can be physically out mm -hmm. uh, in the streets and it would be ableist to assume they can be. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of work that can be done behind the scenes and, and through social media and through um, mutual aid. You know, there's so many different ways to help. And, and so my last question is, uh, what, so uh, what are your goals with Thrive moving forward? At the heart of Thrive, it, I, I would like it to be a community learning center where I'm able to do my consulting. I'm able to host classes and have other individuals host classes in person. Uh, because of COVID, obviously that's not happening anytime soon. So um, I'm definitely continuing on with doing these virtual education series. The marijuana series will be one of the first ones that I've done collaboratively. Um, I've done individual ones with groups, but now I'm taking it to a new level of actually collaborating with other people, especially you know working with Senator Taylor, working with Eric Marsh, working with Representative Ortiz, to work with them and to see you know the advocacy work and even to teach me some of the things they've gone through and now to make it personal for residents is, is just been beautiful. So, so yeah, so at the end of the day though, Thrive is, is meant to be a community center, but because of COVID, we're gonna be continuing with virtual events. I'll still be continuing mentoring others. And I, anyone watching this, this, uh, this um, show, 
you know, they should know if, if they are a youth organizer, um, whether that's high school or college, and they're looking to learn about organizing and how they can be more effective. I'm happy to meet with anyone. Um, reach out to me again, uh, thrivemke at gmail.com. I always offer the same deal. You get three sessions, you know, all rooted around whatever your mission and vision might be or help you develop those things if you need it. And really at the end of the day, it's serving me because then I know our hands are gonna be good in the next generation. So, um, but yeah, that's that's mainly it. Kind of keep trucking with COVID and hopefully soon knocking on all the wood that we can be safe in person again. But, and, and one day I'll have my center, but you know, until then, this is just as fine with me. Can't wait till you do. Um, <laughs> um, well, you heard the woman, y'all know what to do. Um, Drea, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this was this was such a wonderful conversation, and uh, I'm very inspired by you and your prosperity. And uh, I uh, I hope to work together in the future for sure. So on our way out, as as we close out, I ask everyone the same two questions, um, and we can keep this brief. Uh, but the first question is, uh, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? That's a deep one. Okay. I think honestly, I, I tell all of my students the same thing that, you know, Miss Rodriguez is a very selfish person. I do everything I do because one day they're going to be in charge of the world. And, and this is, and I just want to sit back in my chair and I, I just want to be an old lady one day and not have to worry so much. So I think the one thing that keeps me up at night is that I, I won't have the power to help all of them um, to get to that level of understanding. But at the same time, it's also what is fueling me waking up in the morning and my drive every day. So, so I do welcome that uncomfortable feeling and I think we need them sometimes. So it yeah. keeps me up, but it also keeps me motivated. What puts you to sleep is the second question. Um, what puts me to sleep? I think honestly to know that I tried my best every day and to know that I accomplished at least one goal that I set out to do and also the fact that if I don't put on my own oxygen mask, I cannot responsibly put on the ones of others. And so I have to sleep if I'm gonna be at my best. So I literally force myself and I do this exercise with Tammy Rivera. She has an amazing um, coaching business called Equitiva. And it was so amazing when I did this exercise with her, but basically what she makes you do is you completely blank out your entire calendar and the first thing that you have to schedule in there is six to eight hours of sleep. Work comes later, self-care comes first. And to give yourself that permission to look at your life that way, because we are such a capitalist society and we're always you know, that rat chasing the cheese and to say, yeah, I do need to sleep. I do need to do that. And you know, Dre is about to be 43 years old and you know, self-care is something that I really, women in my, in my family wasn't able to model for me because we weren't allowed to. So to actually have that conversation with myself as an adult and say, I don't want my children to burn themselves out. I don't wanna die early. I gotta go, I gotta rest, I gotta walk, I gotta exercise, I need to drink my water. Um, these are the things I do. And, and right now, you know, I, I say to all of your viewers as well, don't debate whether or not you get sleep, make it happen because this is self-preservation and without each other, we have nothing. So let's make it a priority. Love that. Self-love self is radical. Self-love right. is That's power. Right. right right on, yeah. Uh, love that. And uh, 
our energy is finite. You know, we were not meant to wear ourselves so thin. So, but uh, but society will fool you to thinking otherwise. So you know, really, yeah. that is a radical thought to actually care about yourself. Right. Yeah. Fuck all that other noise. Damn straight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Stray, for being on the show. This is this. Thank is you. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you again soon. Yes. Likewise. Uh, for everyone watching, uh, I'll be tagging uh, Thrive Service Learning. Uh, so you can uh, check out uh, Dre's uh, wonderful activism and services. And uh, also I'll be tagging uh, Southside Organizing Center so you can see all the work they do as well. Um, get in touch with her, uh, you know what to do. Thanks for watching, Mr. Nice Guy. We will see you next time.